Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Revelation. We are in chapter 9. We are back where we left off the last time we were together like this on a Wednesday night, which kind of crazy to think. It's been uh, not quite two months, but it's been like seven weeks. It was the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving that we were last uh, together like this. So um, we certainly need a little bit of review, I would say. Um, we have been studying Revelation since September. We have made it through eight chapters so far, and what we have established in those eight chapters is that uh, the book has seven cycles, and the Lord is using these seven cycles to show the Apostle John the way things will be until Jesus comes back, the way things will be when Jesus comes back. In Revelation 1, verse 19, John is commissioned for his task. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And so that's what he's doing. In the first cycle, we see how things are. How things are until Jesus comes back in the church. The church is going to suffer. We saw this in the seven churches, right? The church will suffer. The church will have sin to combat. The church will have false teaching to reject. But if they do, and they endure, and they overcome, then they will reign with Christ forever. In the second cycle, we saw this worship scene in heaven, a scroll in the right hand of the Father, and all the history between the first and second coming of Christ is written on that scroll. And John needs to know what's on that scroll so he can do his job and tell us how things are and how things will ultimately be, but there is nobody worthy to open the scroll until the slain but victorious Lamb, Jesus, enters in. And he begins to open the seven seals that have sealed up the scroll. And as he opens them, we learn what happens in the time of history between the first and second coming of Christ. There will be conquest, nation against nation. There will be war. There will be famine. And as a result of all that, there will be death. Christians will be killed for their faith. They will cry out to God for justice. And the Lord will answer their cries by returning and judging the world from His throne of righteousness. And we saw in that cycle that the saints will not be judged by God because the slain lamb has already received their judgment. Instead, the believers who make up Jesus' church are the sealed servants of God who serve Him on the earth, and one day the church will be the great multitude from every nation who worships Jesus for all of eternity with the angels and the elders and the living creatures in heaven. And then right before the holidays, we got to the third cycle, which is where the seven trumpets enter in. And so if you're tracking, cycle one, seven churches. Cycle two, seven seals. Cycle three, seven trumpets. And you can see the pattern there. God is using these literary devices to show us what the time leading up to Jesus' return and the return itself is like. And he's showing us from different angles. Same event, from different perspectives, different angles. And the literary devices of the churches and the seals and the trumpets and in the future, the bowls, they're going to help us to see what God is showing us from each perspective. The trumpets... Uh, come to us, and, and, and we recognize that trumpets are important in the Scriptures, particularly when it comes to warning people of judgment. The trumpets were a warning in Joshua when they were blown just before God judged the idolatrous nation of Jericho through the sword of his people. The prophets would refer to the trumpet as a sound of urgency when they would warn people to repent of their sin or face the discipline of God. And the trumpets are once again playing this role of warning in Revelation. 
In Revelation 8, the trumpets are sounded as a response to the prayers of God's people rising up to him. If you'll remember, the first four trumpets impacted creation. There was agricultural fallout as a result, economic fallout as a result. But the judgments are limited. And so what we saw in the first four trumpets is that God is always at work in the world. That in this time in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, when we see things happening in the world that have agricultural uh, fallout and, and consequences, that have economic fallout and consequences, we shouldn't say, well, that's kind of weird. That, what a coincidence that those things are happening. No, we should say, look how God is executing his judgments in the nations. He's doing something, right? But those judgments are limited. He's not bringing his full judgment down yet, but his judgments are active in the nations, and we will see that every day until his son returns. And the first four trumpets demonstrate that to us. And then Revelation 8 ended with this really eerie scene of an eagle flying overhead, pronouncing doom upon those who dwell on the earth. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So that catches us up to where we're at tonight in Revelation 9. We're going to hear the fifth trumpet's blast. All right, There's three woes. Woe, woe, woe. One for each one of the trumpets that is coming. So the first woe, the first trumpet, it's unfolding tonight with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, with the fifth trumpet blast. And we will see some horrific images, really, um, as a result of that trumpet being blown. So let's read Revelation 9, starting in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came, uh, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them in the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. The first thing we see is this fifth angel blowing his trumpet. John told us in verse 6, there's seven trumpets. All are ready to blow. The first four are unleashed in verses 7 through 12. Now the fifth angel is blowing his horn. And when he does, John sees a star that falls from heaven. That star that falls is given a key. The fact that the star is given a key is a hint to us that this is not a star, okay? That this is a person. You don't give keys to stars. You don't give uh, keys to objects. You give keys to people. You give keys to beings that can use them. And so we are dealing with a creature of some sort here. 
And I'm going to argue, and this is not uh, a, a um, controversial thing for me to say, most Bible commentators agree, that this is Satan that we are talking about here. Why does he fall? Some think this is a reference to his initial rebellion against God. That's probably there. But I also think that this is saying something about the fact that in Jesus' coming and in Jesus' birth and in his ministry and in his death and in his resurrection and in his his ascension, he has brought a full-on war against the powers of hell and he is not losing that war, right? So because of his victory in this war, he sees Satan falling. Because Satan is not just a fallen creature, he is a fallen creature who is continuing to be defeated. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus' disciples come back and they're all fired up because they've just cast out demons, what does he say? It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's like, oh, you kick some, some demons' tails, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw Satan fall. He's, he's, he's a loser who is continuing to lose. And it's a foreshadowing of what we will see in chapter 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. It's the the old serpent from the garden, the same enemy that deceived Adam to begin with. You see that this key is given to him. It is a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. In Greek, bottomless pit literally means abyss. We are talking about hell here. Bottomless because its misery and its darkness are unending. Satan is referred to directly again in verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. He is the angel who is king over the abyss. This is, this is Satan. And in Hebrew, Abaddon and Greek, Apollyon both mean the same thing, destroyer. That's who he is. He is a destroyer. We know that from reading about him in Scripture. We know that from seeing his activity in the world. We know that because Jesus told us that's who he is. In John 10.10 when he says the thief only comes to kill, steal, and what? Destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so in verse 2, the destroyer, Satan, the king of the bottomless pit, opens the shaft of the pit and smoke like the smoke of a great furnace rises up. It, it blots out the, the sun uh, in the air, and there is darkness, because this is how Satan likes to work, in darkness. Also, darkness is a sign of God's judgment. With the smoke comes these locust demons, demonic legions of our enemies, the fallen angels of Jude 6. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is who we're talking about in Revelation 9. It's the forces of Satan. It's his legions. The fallen angels who have chosen to side with him in the rebellion against God. In verses 3-10, through 10, we learn what these demon locusts look like. Description's pretty terrifying, but you don't need to put too much stock in it. You don't need to worry about a demon that looks like this, like showing up in your living room or something, because this is more meant to convey what they're like 
than what they actually look like. Remember, this is a vision. And so there are descriptors that are trying to tell us about the reality of things, but this isn't necessarily uh, an, an exact description of them, right? It is a, a description of what they look like. And so they look like horses prepared for battle. We see that in verse 7. They have what appears to be crowns of gold on their head in verse 7. Their faces are human-like. Their hair is woman-like. Their teeth are lion-like. They are warlike, wearing a breastplate of iron, and the noise of their wings is like the noise of chariots going into battle, and they have scorpion tails. It's a pretty pretty, uh, grimacing image if if, if you were to try to draw it, or you were to try to just imagine it in your head. It definitely has roots in a passage from Joel 2. In Joel 2, a passage that is associated with judgment, associated with the day of the Lord, associated with God's ultimate judgment in the world, it says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Remember, trumpets equal alarm, right? Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them throughout, uh, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness. So do you see how they're like locusts? You look behind them, they're eating up everything behind them. You look ahead of them, it looks like the garden of Eden. But nothing is going to escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. You can see all the parallel imagery there. You can see all the shared language between Joel 2 and Revelation 9. The locusts here also remind us of the locusts that came upon Egypt and God's judgments on Egypt in the Exodus. But don't spend, again, too much time worrying about exactly what they look like, but let the imagery tell you what they are like. We know that they are coming for war, right? Because they are dressed as they're prepared for battle. They have crowns of gold on their head. A crown of gold represents victory in the book of Revelation. The fact that they're wearing them tells us that they are like arrogantly assuming they're going to win, right? Um, it's like walking into a final. So the World Cup final just happened, and whenever you watch a big soccer match, they ought to do this in the NFL too, but you ever watch a big soccer match, the teams walk out, they have the trophy there. So they all have to walk by it and look at it. It's like, yeah, that's what we're playing for. That's the weight of the moment. Let's all feel it, you know. Um, but imagine if like on the way in, Leo Messi, who won the World Cup final and finally solidified his, his legacy and everything, you know, what if he had grabbed it before the game started and just started running around the field and was like, look at me I won I won you say what are you doing you haven't won anything yet put it down you're going to end up losing right it's prideful you're being arrogant and that's exactly the way they are it's like we'll we'll run around with the trophy before the game even happens because that's how certain we are we're going to win of course we know that they won't but that is the sort of irrational confidence they're riding with their human-like faces tell us they're intelligent they're cunning they can fool you Their teeth like a lion shows us they're ferocious and they want to rip us apart. They have hair like a woman which shows how they can be seductive. 
They wear iron breastplates, symbolizing uh, this idea that they're invincible and they're impenetrable and you can't stop them. And the sound of their wings sounds like chariots speeding into the battle. It's a sound of war when they are coming. Their scorpion tail points to the sting that they bring down upon those who dwell on the earth. They will not harm creation like the judgments that accompanied the first four trumpets. Instead, they come against people. People who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Back in Revelation 7 verse 3, the scriptures says, uh, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The seal is a reference to the seals of the ancient world that, uh, that, that, that kings would make with their signet rings. When a king would take wax or clay and he would do something with his signet ring, he was saying, it is secure. And it belongs to me. And I'm authenticating that it's real. I'm confirming that this is legitimate. And so it is with the children of God. By the blood of the new covenant, our salvation has been sealed by God. By the blood of Christ, our salvation has been sealed. We are secure in Him. Authentically His children. Confirmed in the book of life by the work of the Father and the Spirit and the Son to save us. And so as these demon locusts ride, though they may want to, they cannot destroy the church. They cannot harm the sealed the redeemed in Christ, but they will harm the unsealed. We're told they will torment them for five months. You see that in verse 5. You also see that in verse 10 when the sting of their tail is described. Five months was the fullness of the locust season. That's as long as the locusts were going to hang around in ancient Israel. five months. So when it says five months, it's saying that it's going to be about as bad as it can possibly be without just full-on dying. Five months means like, like max suffering, like max evil, like this is, this is as bad as you can imagine it. It's still limited, but it, it's about as bad as you can imagine it. Full on. What we're talking about here are the demonic forces of hell. And I, and I don't say this lightly. The demonic forces of hell tormenting the hearts and minds and bodies and lives of unbelievers. The curtain's being peeled back for John. He's being shown why things are the way they are. We're not just talking about a little depression here, though let me tell you, a little depression will go a long way to to harming a person. I'm talking about something even bigger than that. I'm talking about understanding why there's evil in the world and understanding the effects that it has in, in people's lives. And the fact that here, the Bible is showing us That when you look at evil in the world and you look at how it affects people, that's not happening in a vacuum. Something is going on there. There's someone behind it and and there is someone who is the cause of it. And he's a destroyer, right? So to to, to, to really get this across, let me point to a couple of biblical examples. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah's talking about the king of Babylon and the evil he's causing in the world. And then suddenly, it's like he's just talking about the devil. He's like, king of Babylon, king of Babylon, Satan. And you're like, well, what, what's going on, Isaiah? Why are you, what are you switching from the king of Babylon to Satan so seamless for? Well, listen to what's said. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Isaiah's got no problem just switching from talking about the king of Babylon to talking about the king, king of hell, talking about Satan, because he knows that Satan is ultimately the one that lies behind the evil kings. So he can talk about the king of Babylon and the aspirations of the king of Babylon, and he can talk about Satan and his aspirations in the same breath because it is Satan's evil that's behind the evil of the king of Babylon. It's Satan's evil ambitions that lie behind the evil ambitions of the Babylonian monarch. Similar situation in Ezekiel 28. Instead of Babylon, we're dealing with Tyre. Ezekiel's talking about the king of Tyre, and then all of a sudden, you were in Eden. Who was in Eden? The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. It's the same thing. It's like Ezekiel's talking about the king of Tyre and all of a sudden let's talk about Satan because he recognizes that behind the king of Tyre is the same, uh, the, the, the same serpent, the same dragon who slithered into the garden and deceived Adam. He is the evil that lies behind evil men. So today, we as Christians watch our TV and we see all the evil on the TV and they tell us it's because of poverty, it's because of lack of education, it's because of global economics, it's because of inequality, it's because of racism, it's because of rivalries, it's because of domestic disputes, it's because of alcohol and drugs, it's because of corrupt politicians. And you know what? We can blame a whole lot of that on all that. But who's the wizard behind the curtain? It is the enemy and his demon locust running amok in the world. The king of hell is intent on bringing hell into the lives of the people on the earth. And when this just gets so bad, and people have no, no biblical worldview, they have no, no um, cross-centered uh, you know, uh, lenses to see the world through, when, when that happens, they want to die. People get so, um, uh, they, they, they become so overwhelmed by the weight of sin and evil in the world that they just go, I just want to give up. I don't want to live here anymore. Which is why verse 6 says, And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. We are talking about truly terrible stuff. But for the people who were hearing John's revelation for the first time, this was explaining some things. They were suffering at the hands of Jewish synagogues that hated them and the leadership there. They were being called blasphemers and being cursed by those that many of, of, of the Christians who were Jewish, they would have counted them as their people. And all of a sudden they're cursing them, wishing death upon them. They were suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. And they hear this from John and God is telling them, listen, there's more to this. 
There is more than just the physical that you can see. There's more than just the, the events that are scrolling across the ticker on the bottom of the screen. There's a spiritual war at hand. And Satan's forces are at work. And so much of what you see in the world and so much of what you see tormenting the lives of unbelievers is a result of him and his evil. Now, as you read this, it's a relief to see that those who are sealed by the Lord are not harmed, but that doesn't mean they're not impacted. Believers still feel the effects of Satan's work in the world, but ultimately, we are not hopelessly plagued by it. Because we know our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are a temple of the living God. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This belongs to Jesus, right? And I'm not going to do some like weird preacher thing where it's like, everybody do that. Everybody say, this belongs to Jesus, okay? We're not going to do that. But you can, you know, like you can go home tonight, look yourself in the mirror and say, God died for this. God gave a son for this. He loves me. He wants me to glorify him. He wants joy for my life. He wants my worship, and he died for this. And now he lives in this. I am his temple. So no, no demon's going to come and take up residence here. And I will not suffer like the world because he dwells in me. And he will not let me be hopeless to the point of despair. Ultimately, Satan's deceptions cannot drag a believer into hell because nobody steals from the hands of Jesus. John 6.39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Even if the despairs of this world were to take a Christian off of this earth, which that happens, we don't need to talk out all the ways that it does, but that happens, Satan still can't drag their soul into hell, can he? He still can't destroy them. And so that's awesome. But if you're like me, I could sit up here and for the next 30 seconds rattle off the names of people that I love that do not know Jesus and do not believe that he is their Lord and Savior. And to think of them being bombarded by the evils of hell without the seal of the Lord, without protection, without hope. That's a grave reality. That's tough. But let me offer you some solace. And the fact that this angel who is the king over the bottomless pit is a created being who has limited power. Notice in verse 1, Satan is given the key to the bottomless pit. He doesn't have the key. He doesn't just go get the key off his shelf. It's not in his stockroom. It doesn't belong to him. It's given to him. He doesn't own it. It had to be handed to him, and that is because his power is limited. He only, he, he only has in as much authority as God would allow him to have. Satan is, in effect, a dog on God's leash. Joel Beakey says God controls Satan so that he cannot ultimately harm believers, but is an instrument for the destruction of the wicked. Satan is an instrument of judgment and destruction in the hands of an all-wise and all-powerful God. He fancies himself as a God. That's what he thinks he is. But he's only the God over this world for a very short time, a very short time that God will allow. And he will not deceive the believers who are in the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, talking about unbelievers, says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Some people respond to this and they object and they say, look, if the fall of man and the devil are responsible for evil and sin, but the devil can only work with God's permission, then is God not ultimately responsible for evil? Well, I think this is, number one, that's a very good question to ask. I think this is where we have to be really clear about what we're saying and what we are not saying. When we say that Satan can only work with God's permission, we are not saying that God is the author of sin. He can't be. There's no sin in his character. We are not saying that he is responsible for what has gone wrong in the world. He created the earth. It was good. He created man from the dust. It was very good. We are the ones that did not believe him. We are the ones that did not trust in him. What we are saying is that God permits or allows evil to happen. He is not guilty of committing evil, but he permits or he allows it. I don't always know the reason he permits and he allows certain evils, and neither do you. We could make our guesses. We can look at the Bible and see his character and try to use some wisdom to try to put, you know, a uh, try to, to get from point A to point B to try to put the pieces together. But ultimately, we do not always understand the reasons that he allows and he permits certain things to occur and to happen. But unless you're willing to say there are elements of existence that are outside of his control, which I hope you're not willing to say that, because that's a very different God than the one we see in the Bible, then we have to say he is allowing or permitting everything, including evil. The reality that everybody's got to deal with is God could have snuffed it out from the jump. It's not like Satan deceived Adam and Eve and God's in heaven going, was there like a, is there a hole in here somewhere that I didn't see? It's not like you, like if a snake shows up in your house, you know, you're surprised and you're like, how did this happen, right? But that's not the case with God. The snake slithered into his house and he was like, there's the snake. He knew the snake was coming. He knew exactly who the snake was. The snake didn't get into his garden without God knowing. He could have destroyed him right away. He could have never created him. He could have created human beings so that we would not even have the ability to sin. But none of that was his choice or his plan. He chose to create people who could willfully worship him. And while we might not always understand all the reasons that he has allowed history to unfold as it has, we can be confident of this, that he's arranging all of it to give his son Jesus the most possible amount of glory for all of eternity. And as those who have been redeemed by Christ, that should be our number one concern as well. Here's another thing about Satan's limited power. It, 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 it is falling in influence. Remember I said earlier that he's fallen, but he's falling? His, his influence, his power, it, it is waning and it is falling every time somebody turns from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus. So like... My dad, I've told his story quite a few times, how like he got off work one day, it's you know, like October 1998, he's sitting in the, break, or, uh, the locker room taking his boots off at Dominion, a couple guys come in, they're talking about Jesus, one of them just turns to him, Mike, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Nope. Would you like to? Yep. And led my dad to Jesus right there in the spot that day, and that's how his relationship with, with God started. That day, when Mike Howard repented of his sin... There was a party in heaven, the angels rejoiced, and there was a power failure in hell. <sighs> right? It lost a little bit because there was one more that belonged to the domain of darkness that now is in the kingdom of the beloved son. 
This is why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared, Apostle John wrote, was to destroy the works of the devil. It's why He came. And 2,000 years ago, this destruction took place when Jesus died on the cross and He subjected Himself to the sting of the scorpion's tail for you. And when He died there at Calvary, He sucked all the poison out of it for His people. When He suffered and died for sin, He declared open war on the devil and the demons and all of hell, and He won. Paul writes, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And with all the poison gone from the tail, the Son of God resurrected and He stepped on the old serpent's head along with all of His demon locusts. And ultimately, this prison that Satan thinks he is the great king over is going to hold him in burning chains for all of eternity. I'm the king over this prison. I hope you love it. You're going to be there forever. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What's the only way to avoid demonic attacks that end in destruction? What's the only way to be sure that Satan and his forces cannot plague your life and destroy you? It's to trust in Christ. It's to trust in Jesus. It's to receive the victory over Satan that comes with the eternal life Jesus provides. What happens to the subjects of Satan's kingdom in this passage? Well, in Revelation 9, 1-12, life gets worse for them. The evil in the world impacts them on every level until it drags them into eternal judgment. This is what Satan gives to the members of his domain of darkness. He gives them misery. Christ gives his citizens of his kingdom abundant life. And that abundant life is the only remedy to the work of Satan. It's the seal of God. And so, if you want to be protected from the enemy, you must receive the new covenant promises of knowing God through His Son Jesus, being safe in God now and forever by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ for salvation. Only then can we confidently live with this knowledge that Satan's limited power is not going to be able to drag our souls into hell in the end. And this is really the purpose of the fifth trumpet. The eagle has pronounced his woe, and the woe comes and goes, but Christ has not returned. we got another trumpet that's going to blow. It's worse, I'll warn you, before we get to next week. Read verses 13 through 21 before we come in next week. It's, it's, it's tough. It's not the easiest passage. It's about all the war that exists in the world and how horrible it is and how Satan is behind all of it. But again, these trumpets are, are blowing and Jesus isn't returning yet. And so what that tells us is that these are alarm bells ringing, saying to us, repent while there is time. Repent before you are destroyed by the serpent from the garden. Repent. It's an alarm warning us that Satan's work 
is all within God's sovereign plan. And in that same plan, His Son will return to condemn Satan, but also all who follow Him to eternal punishment. You don't want to be under that condemnation. And so that is the song that the fifth trumpet is playing for you. It is a pleading song of repentance. It is urging you to turn and to be sealed by the love of God so that your soul would not be harmed by the evil one. Trust in Him if you haven't. And cling to Him if you have. Let's pray. Father, I give You thanks for the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. And I, um, I am thankful tonight, God, that I don't have to worry that as I sleep tonight, Satan's demons are, are going to try to inhabit my body or my mind or they're going to be able to, to drag me off into some sort of horror that is going to ultimately end in my destruction in hell forever because of the seal of the new covenant, because of the blood of your son, because of the spirit who dwells in me. I'm not worried about this tonight, God. Your, your people in this room who are the redeemed people of God are not worrying about this. But we have so many people in our lives we love, and it's scary to think that the enemy can get their hands on them, get his hands on them, that, that his, his forces can, can torment and, and, and try to destroy them and try to bring them to a point where they would despair and they would want death. Father, don't let the destroyer destroy them. We pray for our lost friends, and we pray for our lost family members. We pray for our lost spouses. We pray for our lost children tonight, God. We pray for uh, people groups that do not know you tonight, Lord. We pray for our missionaries trying to reach them. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes up to the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray the God of this world would not be able to blind them any longer. We pray, Father, that they would repent, that they would be sealed, that they would be protected by the blood of your Son, and that the dragon could not harm them. We pray that, God, and we ask that. Hosanna in the highest. Save, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.